Welcome to the Future of Coding. My guest today is Scott Anderson. Scott is a game developer and a game designer with a special focus on graphics, and that has taken him some very interesting places in his career. He's done indie games like Luna and his own project Shadow Physics, but he's also worked on big AAA blockbusters like Call of Duty, and he's currently at Unity as a senior graphics engineer, but before that, he worked at Facebook on Horizon Worlds and an unreleased VR scripting system in Oculus Home. So this interview was conducted several months ago, but in light of last week's announcements from Meta Facebook, the things that we talked about in this interview are suddenly a little bit contentious because I think some people are probably sick of all this talk about the metaverse, but there's a really interesting angle to it that to do a proper metaverse, you need a huge focus on user-created content and on really good tools to enable people to make content. And if that content is going to be at all interesting, it needs to have very rich behavior. And so a large part of what we talk about today is what alternative interfaces for programming one could create if they wanted to, for instance, bring a whole bunch of people into a brand new environment that is computational, and how we might enable those people to create whatever it is that they imagine, while at the same time accounting for all the things like new possibilities for abuse, and the questions of power and responsibility that come from the imbalance between a large corporation and the individuals who are going to come and play in their playground. There are questions about the technology that goes into building these tools and and building this new so-called metaverse. How would we actually go about building this kind of stuff on a technical level? And especially with respect to graphics, what things are there out there right now? And how do they work that we might bring to bear in this new area? So this is a fairly long interview and we go some places and we go quite deep. So I hope you will enjoy it. One thing that I will say right off the bat, just because you know, this is something that weighs on my conscience a little bit, is that um, Facebook, especially in light of the recent revelations that have come out, you know, the papers, as it were, but of course, you know, in a much longer arc of their relationship with society over the past, uh, let's say, decade, maybe their entire existence, depending on how you want to frame it, um, they're, they're a company that have a deserved reputation for being a little bit unscrupulous, to put it mildly. And I just wanted to say that the material that we discuss on this show and and the thoughts that we have about what they're doing are relevant regardless of who among the you know large corporate overlords that rule our lives end up pushing to create this new metaverse that we find ourselves confronted with. So the fact that it's Facebook is you know unfortunate, but it is kind of incidental. If Apple come out with their thing in the next couple of years, I think this conversation would apply just as well to what they're doing. If HoloLens from Microsoft ends up taking off in a big way, these ideas are going to manifest there as well. So the fact that this is Facebook, just like as much as you can, try to set that aside. Don't get too hung up on the fact that they're a company with questionable morals and instead look at the fact that we are on the cusp of what might be another major technological revolution on the scale of the phone. At least that's what these large companies like Facebook are hoping it will be because it will give them an opportunity to wrest power. And so if they're going to do that, and if there's going to be a, a role of creating 
new kinds of culture within this new environment on this new platform. I think we need to be having these kind of conversations about it, regardless of which of the corporate overlords ends up pushing their particular vision for it. And, you know, regardless of whether or not this is entirely in VR or is just a another manifestation of the internet powered by regular mice and keyboards and screens. So in any case, all of that stuff being said, there was one other little caveat I wanted to throw in. I normally try to push for the absolute highest possible sound quality on this show. Scott's recording has a little bit of background noise in it. I've done my best to clean it up. It's not pristine, but it should be more than good enough for everyone to enjoy what Scott has to say and to benefit from the absolute trove of, of wisdom and experience that he brings to our show. The show notes and transcript for this episode are available at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 53. Thank you to Replit, as always, for sponsoring that transcript. And thank you to our other episode sponsor today, Glide. You'll hear more about both Replit and Glide throughout the show. So with that, let me kick it over to past Scott and past Ivan to give you a whirlwind tour of what it might be like to do end-user programming in the metaverse. I've seen a lot of what I would call programming in VR projects that are just like a rectangular screen with a virtual keyboard. And whenever I see those, I just think to myself, like, we have to be able to do better than that, right? Like, that seems sort of like the thing you see whenever there's some new medium that emerges, like the first thing that everybody tries is let's just recreate the old medium inside the new medium. So like, early films being like, let's just record theater, early podcasting being like very informed by radio before it kind of found its own voice. So I'm kind of wondering, like, just as broadly to set this up, like what are your thoughts on programming in VR and what kind of projects have you seen where people are like doing interesting things in that space? And do you have any of your own kind of VR native programming ideas that you've been thinking about? Yeah. I'll, I'll start with the first part of your question. Like just opening up a rectangle in space and having a virtual keyboard in VR is pretty terrible experience right now. You know, it's something that people get excited about, I believe, because it's something that they're familiar with. Right. And there is like a cool factor to some of the environments that do that, where like you, you type code in a rectangle, but there are things happening around you that are physical, like you spawn a cube or, you know, some rigid bodies fall from the sky or whatever. You know, it gives you this kind of godlike effect in the universe that you wouldn't get in a flat screen game programming environment, even if it was live coded. Right. But at least with current and especially, you know, kind of last gen VR hardware screen resolutions aren't really good enough for that to be a good experience. Virtual keyboards kind of suck you know, on most platforms, but especially in VR, but you can imagine a future where, you know, we've seen big like advances in VR HMD resolution, right? So you can imagine a future where all VR HMDs are 8K plus, right? Where you have features like eye tracking and verifocal. So you can actually look at something and it'll change your lens focus, right? So you're not, uh, one, one kind of standard, uh, feature of VR hardware is that the lenses don't change focus and they're optimized for, you know, I think it's roughly like two meters in front of you which is great for like a lot of games, right? But it's not really good for reading text, right? So, so you actually want to change the, the focal length for reading text. So you can imagine with all these harbor advances, right? And you have a track keyboard, so you can use a real keyboard and see it in VR, which is a feature that's available on Oculus Quest 2 uh, right now if you buy the right keyboard, where the experience 
even if it's a traditional programming experience, gets good enough that like it's still it's still the way people code in VR. But as you kind of hinted at, it's not really it's still not really taking advantage of the medium, right? You're 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 bringing what people are familiar with, like the the present of coding into VR and making it work in VR, rather than looking at VR as maybe a future of coding device, right? And looking at oh well, how do how does like physically embodied coding work, right? So you know that that kind of brings me back to when I first first got interested in coding in VR, which was I believe like. 2015, early 2016, some sometime around then, when you know, around when Oculus Rift and uh, the original Vive were launching, I was playing around with some VR prototypes. I had just, I believe, started to work at Phenomena on a VR game called Luna, and I was doing a lot of prototypes for that game. Luna as a game has a has a creative mode where it's kind of like a almost like a, a a gardening system or like a playing with toy building thing. That was a lot of my inspiration for some of the design for the UI is actually just playing with toys um, because the game itself is very playful. It's got a children's storybook illustration art style. So, you know, I did a bunch of kind of you know VR track controller interaction features like you can plant trees and to plant the trees you drop them uh on the on like a terrain right but then you can edit the trees and to edit the trees you grab different points along the tree so if you grab the top and pull up you can scale the tree up and down if you grab the top and pull to the side or grab the middle and pull to the side the tree itself is an ik chain so you can actually bend the tree and kind of warp it uh, and if you grab at the bottom of the tree, you could, there's a color picker and you, you, you basically rotate your hand around the tree to color pick, right? And then like Luna had a lot of fun little interactions, but you know, I, I felt like I was just kind of getting into, you know, the like really basic prototyping phase, even though all this stuff shipped in the game, right? It's a game you can buy it now. It's on multiple VR platforms, pretty much all of them. And all of this stuff shipped. And it was good, but it made me kind of think of like, oh, well, what are deeper ways these systems could work, right? Like, what does a volumetric color picker look like? You know, what do, what do more complex IK chains look like, et cetera? Mm-hmm. Or like add new nodes or uh, what's the term for that in IK chains? It's been so long since I've done bones. Can you add like new bones to an existing tree with an ik chain in it or is that like yeah you can you cannot do that in luna you can't like edit mesh there's no mesh editing or anything like that right and there's no terrain editing so so it's it's a it's not it's not actually like an art tool or anything right it's a game and the you know the the gameplay is like decorative gameplay like you would have an animal crossing but you know with less items right so the modifications are pretty limited, right? So, but th- those things that you brought up would be kind of interesting things to add to <laughs> Luna or some other similar application that, you know, is maybe more advanced, right? Um, so, so, you know, Luna and, and kind of other, some other VR, uh, prototypes I did got me thinking of a lot of different things, but one of them specifically that I wrote really early on was tangible coding in VR, right? So this idea that you could bring physical interactions or things that felt like real physical interactions into a digital world and still have all the affordances of being in a game engine and, and, you know, being able to 
be fast and loose with physics and fast and loose with, you know, matter and mass. Like obviously you have constraints, right. In terms of performance, like CPU and GPU performance and how many things you can render and what complexity they can be, et cetera. But, um, you know, you have a lot of constraints that you, that are entirely lifted uh, or don't exist um, without, you know, complex systems that would exist in the real world. Right. So one thing with tangible coding, um, I've always been interested in it, but you need to have a lot of physical blocks, right? There's not really too many uh, real commercial tangible coding systems and they tend to be expensive and they're all universally targeted at kids, right? There's no professional tangible coding really. Like you could, you could argue that, electronics when you start to move into electronics that's technically like tangible coding but not really right so mm. you're thinking like arduinos and that kind of thing or yeah 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 but but like when, when i talk tangible coding i mean like uh google project blocks like kind of things that are like uh let's write code with a bunch of lego blocks or let's let's write code with you know magnetic connecting pieces or something like that right um you know and that, that was kind of just like my one line blurb i didn't really have a lot of ideas about the the system or like what it would do or how it would actually work at that point. But for various reasons, I did not have time to prototype that. Uh, but, but, uh, then I, then I interviewed with the, uh, Oculus home team right before they were launching the, the kind of new at the time Oculus home, which is still the, the Oculus home that you launch into when you go into the PC version of, you know, Oculus software. Right. Can you give us like a one sentence? Like what is Oculus home? Um, Oculus home is, you know, effectively you have like a house or an apartment in VR. Uh, it's kind of like your VR desktop. That's the idea. Right. And quest has a similar thing. It doesn't have the, the, the modification aspects of it, but similar to Luna, right. Or, or, you know, I said like mentioned Luna and mentioned, you know, kind of animal crossing style decoration software, right. You'd have an inventory of items and you could decorate those items. So you could put like TVs or computer monitors or desk. There were some interactive objects like, uh, or there are some interactive objects like bone arrows and, uh, you know, kind of an NES style zapper gun that shoots lasers and makes sounds and basketballs and stuff like that. Right. So, uh, there are a lot of interactive elements, um, but pure interactivity is cool. But if you want to actually start building even small games of that stuff, right, you need some sort of programming language scripting yeah some way to inject some dynamism yeah yeah exactly so i was hired to um you know kind of work on visual scripting in that environment for various reasons i never actually shipped any of my work in there um and we'll get into that later but um, yeah i did a feature where it was basically i spent a, a good, like about six months doing a feature where uh that allowed for screen sharing because it also had pretty good uh PC desktop integration, right? So, uh, you could, you could actually see like all of your desktop windows in VR on various virtual screens that you placed in the world. Um, so we had TVs and computer monitors and, and things of that nature. And then we added multiplayer and for multiplayer, you could screen share with everyone in your space, right? So you could choose to broadcast and you could do, use it to, you know, watch videos together or, you know, there's even prototypes and none of this shipped, but there are prototypes of, that would allow for kind of like co-located game playing as well. Um, hmm. So like coach co-op, but, you know, two people a thousand miles apart kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And latency was an issue. And the, the latent, like for video watching, the latency wasn't that big of a deal. But like 
the latency wasn't ideal for game playing um, because it was it was all it's obviously all hosted on one person's PC, right? So if you're just forwarding inputs, you can't predict in that case, right? You know, it, it's you you have to solve game streaming, but without the benefit of a huge cloud, yeah. Exactly. It's peer-to-peer, and it could be over really long distances. It's not really a solvable problem in terms of making it good. Thanks, physics. <laughs> <laughs> right? But it's, it's kind of, it was, that's why it was a prototype. It was kind of fun to just, you know, see it. Yeah. Uh, and I could, I, like, I, you know what? To me, that kind of thing feels so inevitable that I can see there being games created specifically to accommodate that kind of a latency as a, as a baseline, where it's like, it's not going to be a Twitch shooter or a platformer or something. It's going to be you know, something, something more strategic maybe, or something like that. But I, I, I can't imagine a future of VR without like two people are in a room together and they want to play a game on the same, you know, virtual TV in front of them. Yeah. And you could absolutely do something like Jackbox or, you know, kind of a, a, a party game style thing or code names or whatever, a party game style game that, uh, where latency just doesn't matter at all, or it matters very little. Right. And, and it would be a, a lot of fun in VR. Uh, definitely more fun than playing it on Zoom, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Though, and I know there's going to be people out there in the audience who hear me say something like that and who hear us talking about, like, let's put TVs in VR. And it's like, no, that's the the problem. Like, VR gives us this, like, you want to you go, like, live on Pandora or whatever. That's what VR lets you do. Why Why do we keep porting the screens and the, and the rectangles and that kind of, like, hunched over, narrow view into the dynamic world into what should be the ultimate dynamic world short of like you know i put some like fancy contact lenses on and then get like perfect ar overlaid in the real world like that you know let's set that aside for a minute but like vr you can define the space to be whatever you want so that should unlock a ton of new creative potential and and let us revisit a lot of our assumptions but i think like uh, one of the points that you made about like hey facebook home is kind of like animal crossing and i'm reminded when i hear you talk about that of like you know back in the in the late 80s early 90s when i was a kid a lot of these early gui programs that i was playing with were like about kind of decorating your computer and making it feel more like 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 the desktop metaphor right like this idea of you know files on your desktop and a little trash bin that you can put stuff in and it's like there's this i think the urge to recreate the kind of the familiar surroundings from before in the new medium is is a good urge and i think it's just like you know, it's worth kind of being conscious of how much of that is about giving people an easy way to get themselves familiarized with the new environment and make themselves a little home so that they're comfortable in it. And then making sure that that's not like the stopping point, like that we keep going and we're like, okay, now that everybody's got a little, you know, a little nice, cozy space that they've made for themselves. Now can we go and let them like swim around inside metaballs or something like that? I, I want to wave my hands around in the air and have that conjure up computations like they're magic spells. So I'm curious, like, where do we keep pushing to get closer and closer to that kind of a bigger reinvention? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I definitely agree that, like, I think I think there's two sides of that, right? Where, like, one side is that, um, you know, uh <laughs> making sure users are familiar, making sure that like if you're selling people a product and you show them something that is 
and this isn't 100% true by any means, right? But if you show them something that they're somewhat unfamiliar with and they don't see the value in it, right? Mm -hmm. They may not be interested in it, right? So it's like, oh, I can watch videos on a big screen with my friends without owning a big screen, right? Is a fantasy that a lot of people have, even though it's kind of mundane, right? Like, so I, I mean, and, and Facebook especially is, is, is kind of especially bad at this, right? Like, I, f I feel like as an organization in general, and, and you know, it's, a, it's unfortunate in some ways that they're shepherding like VR at this point. Right. And like, no one, no one's close to Facebook in, in my opinion, uh, right now. Um, you know, it's a big company. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 you know, relatively corporate, right. And they're not necessarily going to want to, you know, kind of push the boundaries in that sense. Right. Um, like it's probably not a priority for them that VR has a really strong demo scene right out of the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate because like, I feel like VR in general has been that way outside of with maybe a few exceptions, right? There's some people that, um, uh, like I remember really early on and even later, like Isaac Cohen, um, who's, who's kind of a, you know, creative coder slash demo scene person, uh, made a game called Blarp and he still, he still does like a lot of kind of more out there, uh, VR and AR experiments. Right. Um, and there was like a lot of just, or there's some like really weird stuff, right? But you know, I think VR especially has always been very much about how quickly can we get a new smartphone effectively, right? How can we get a new mobile gold rush where there's this new platform that everyone has to move onto and everything, and you see it now with metaverse conversations, right? Where it's like, oh, well, everything needs to be 3D now because, because, and we're going to have a new web and it's going to be great and we can make the same billions of dollars we made on the web doing the same stuff over again, but it for 3d. Right. And like there, I, I think, you know, a lot of this conversation has been like, what has, what gets lost in that kind of thinking. And, you know, I think there is like a lot of just weird experiments that would fail or, or will fail or like aren't for everyone that can push the mediums that just don't happen because of the way these things are funded. Um, like Apple being so restrictive about like, you know, what kinds of runtime environments you're allowed to ship inside your app. Like, are you allowed to have a scripting environment? What are the limits on that scripting environment? Like that sets a real creativity limit, I think. And so I do, I do kind of fear the same thing happening when it comes to VR and AR more broadly, just cause it's, yeah, like there's there's such a strong incentive, like you said, for this to be the beginning of a new market and not the beginning of a new culture and just because of who's stewarding it. I don't know what the right recipe to get around that is because there was just as much financial motivation going on in the 80s and, and 90s and other times as well when new platforms were emerging. But those platforms, like, yes, the the personal computer isn't all that it was supposed to be, but I think it's arguably close. Whereas like mobile is definitely not close to what it could have been if it had been a little more, you know, a little more of a wild west maybe. And I, I know the arguments in favor of, you know, having mobile be as locked down as it is, but I, I hope that like the fact that VR is so much more intimate and so much more personal and, like as we get computers closer and closer to the cores of our being, 
it kind of heightens the the amount of damage that could hypothetically be done by by that that technology that computer being used maliciously and i just hope that like the safety harnesses that are put around computation by these corporations to ensure that they work well for you know as things that make jim kramer salivate um, even if he can't really articulate what the metaverse is i don't know if you saw that clip it was hilariously distressing yeah <laughs> um but like I, I hope that those kind of restraints that are put on them aren't the kind of restraints that keep us from having a really strong culture and keep us from like creating new kinds of art and especially like you know coming up with with new philosophies about how to program computers and how to have a dynamic medium and how to you know like actually use these platforms to not just serve as like a like a you know another platform for consumption which is the, you know the often used refrain when talking about mobile devices but are actual like tools for thinking with and for augmenting human ability so yeah i mean all of that stuff is like up in the air right now but it is kind of i don't know i'm nervous about it but that's a whole that's a whole thing separate from like what can we do and what are we doing to reinvent programming current financial constraints be damned what are the possibilities that have opened up or what are the things that it would be like hey vr it might someday allow us to do this thing were it not for resolution and and, and latency and like focal distance and other factors that contribute to like nausea or quality of experience if it weren't for the limitations on that kind of stuff like where can we imagine this going in the and hopefully in the near future what do you think yeah um you know it's it's like you bring up that that maybe like safety or driving the metaverse will will kind of force forces maybe the wrong word but push push vr into the a direction that um encourages it, it to be kind of a you mostly live in walled gardens, right? Like mm -hmm. you don't, it's not, it's more of a consumption device, like a mobile device, which, you know, mobile is, its form factor is kind of like optimized for consumption, as you mentioned, but also communication. But that makes sense because that's where like mobile came from. It's a communication device. And that's like really still this best strength of a smartphone, right? Even, even though you can use it to watch videos or read, it's not the best reading or, or video watching device. It just tends to be the most convenient, right? Which is, that's one challenge with VR in general is not particularly convenient. But um, one thing about VR is like, as I've kind of mentioned, and I haven't talked about Horizon at all yet, um, but uh, as, as I mentioned uh, before, you know, both with Oculus Home and Luna, they're both like creative apps. They weren't like, it wasn't as far as like a, oh, there's a lot of art tools that are popular in VR, like Tilt Brush and Medium and Quill, right? Um, and so it's not as far as like a professional or, or, or hobbyist art tool uh, in any of those cases, right? But they're still kind of, micro creative tools. Right. So, so as I, you know, started thinking about, and once again, because I have a game development background and is, you know, a lot of indie game development, I thought about a lot of game ideas, but as I started thinking about game ideas in VR, I was actually like, well, the strength of VR is, is kind of in this, you know, the physical, um, you know, digital kind of mix that I was talking about, right. That you have tracked controllers that you can move your body through space. Uh, 
And that is kind of ideal for creation, not consumption, right? Like VR experiences are cool because they're immersive, right? They're, they're more immersive than film, right? It feels like you're in the place, right? Um, you can do, you could do interesting things with, and, and people are doing interesting things with, uh, immersive theater, right? Um, a former coworker of mine has a startup called Lila where, um, you know, it's funny cause this is actually, you know, I talked about tangible coding in VR, but actually like, I th- like even back in those days, I was like, oh, it'd be cool. And I don't, are you familiar with the book Diamond Age at all? No, never heard of it. Uh, I feel like future coding people should definitely read Diamond Age in general. <laughs> uh, it's a Neil Stevenson book. Like Snow Crash is more popular, right? And Snow Crash comes up a lot with, you know, it's, it coined the term metaverse, et cetera. But uh, Diamond Age um, is like a, similar to Snow Crash in certain ways, right? Um, but it's further in the future. Uh, and it's, the story is about um, mostly about this girl who's kind of growing up in poverty and um, one of the richer, uh, they call them, I, I believe they call them clades, right? They're like, they're like groups of, of folks that, you know, are, are political entities or, or groups or whatever. Um, and one of them invents this thing called like a primer for young ladies. They're a Victorian clave, so themed clave. So they have, you know, it's fancy name for it, but it's, it's basically a, a digital book. That's an educational book, you know, that can, you know, can do like probably a lot of the things that you think of a tablet doing today. Right. But you know, more advanced. Right. But one interesting thing about it is that, um, instead of ha- having an AI entirely drive the experience, there's actually an actor that effectively serves as a teacher and kind of a parent to this girl. Right. So she's interacting through the book but through this actor, right? And they call them Raptors because they're interactive Raptors. And they're, the, the, the conceit is like, even though this Raptor is very special and like the book in kind of combination with the Raptor help this girl who grew up in poverty have a much better outcome kind of um, in society, right? Um, and, and they actually play around with diff- like, there's other copies of the book and some of the copies of the book have no Raptor. I'm dropping spoilers in now, but like that, that's the basic conceit of the, of the book. Right. Um, so the idea was basically kind of do, uh, do like a VR app where, you know, and, and I described it as, you know, cause I think back in those days, especially it was fun to call everything like an Uber for something, but Uber for actors, right. Where you could have like sets set up and you could have like experience set up and it'd be immersive theater, effectively a digital immersive experience, theater experience that actors could actually get in a headset and, get paid to, to run sessions for people. Right. And you could, you could also consider this like role-playing as well, right. Where you hire a DM and there's some startups that do that now, but you would do it like in a VR environment instead. And, and, uh, uh, former coworker of mine actually is doing this as a real startup, not just as a random idea. Um, but I think there is like a lot of power in that, that human element, right. Um, in VR that you can't necessarily get, in other places um because vr is that much more personal than mobile which is that much more personal than the pc it makes me wonder like if the if if the visions of what it would be like to program within this environment aren't just going to be about the fact that it is you know like you are now inside an immersive 3d virtual space where you can bring all of that great game engine technology to make things look and have physics and animate and maybe have a bit of tangibility to them like however you want 
but that that fact that like like what we're seeing with uh, like VTubers on on YouTube now, where there are these people who just for the benefit of the audience, if they haven't been following this, people will buy like full body mocap suits and set up digitizers so that they can like go on YouTube and live stream or on Twitch and live stream themselves as some kind of a like a virtual character. So they'll make like some 3D model of a character and that character will be who you tune in to watch and the the person behind it is just like playing the role of this character but they're doing it with technology in a way that feels kind of novel and interesting because they can change things about their appearance on the fly in ways that in the past you know like in theater we'd accomplish this with like oh somebody's gonna run off stage and have a quick costume change and then run back on and like fast costume changes are like a big part of theater like how do you iron out the production so that everybody can transition scenes very quickly and the set spins around and and new backdrops fly in and that sort of thing. And it's like, as we're getting more and more technology that allows us to have these human relationships in more and more seamless ways or more wild kind of different ways, like you can actually make yourself look like a photorealistic alien or something like that like it gets better and better at crossing the uncanny valley in some sense and it makes me think that like like programming has kind of gone through a similar sort of evolution where it's like from punch cards or even before punch cards right from like doing computation where it's like on paper or in your head or with something like tablet weaving or something like that where it's like not aided by the machine at all where it's like entirely driven by the person and then we get you know large physical computers that you can program with with switches or whatever the big physical mechanisms were into you know terminal based programming and teletype and that sort of thing and and now you know we have programming editors that have you know syntax highlighting and you can have like thousands of files and you can have type hinting and we have all these like richer and richer tools that are gradually getting programming to be closer and closer to people and to what a person is and like a better fit for the human being like using color using space better letting you organize things in a way that suits how you think like having your choice of programming language so that the the kind of thinking that you feel most comfortable doing can be reflected by the kind of tool that you have available and it's like it's all turning into machine code in the end but like there are so many different ways that you can approach it to suit who you are and so it makes me think that like maybe as vr you know expands in popularity and becomes more available to more people and the technology gets better and we kind of get over some of these early little hiccups in in getting it figured out and out there maybe one of the areas where we'll see vr programming really improve on what came before isn't just in like it's like in a game engine and 3d stuff and whoa cool you know shaders but like using it to to be a better reflection of our humanity and maybe that does involve like it's it's allows us to get more people together working on the problems in a you know in a in a more intimate way than before where it's like right now we're using github and that was a big you know a big change from the processes that came before it it's like the social networkification of programming and so maybe vr gives us like I don't want to say the gamification of programming. That's a loaded term. That's not that's not what I mean. But like maybe there's some some aspect of it where it like changes what the incentives are or it changes 
like what the experience of getting an error is like, like maybe it lets you explore errors in a way that is less infuriating and frustrating. Cause there's like, I think an easy way to look at this would be like, look at the parts of programming that are miserable right now. And what can we do with more intimate technology to take some of that misery and reduce it or, or take that misery and like forge it into something that is, more purely about what we're wanting to do with the tool rather than just like affordances because the machinery isn't very robust or very rich right now. Like I love thinking about this idea of like, here's how we're seeing it applied to theater, right? Like people are, you know, maybe you could have a like Uber for theater and VR kind of thing like you suggested. And I'm thinking, yeah, like maybe, maybe the factors to pay the most attention to in thinking about VR programming are the human factors, not the technology factors that are kind of more easy to point to because they're what's existing already. The culture is not there yet. So we don't know what the, the human factors are all going to be, but we know the, like what game engines let us do. And so it's easy to kind of pay a lot of attention to that stuff. Anyways, those are my, those are my two cents. Um, yeah, 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 definitely. Um, you know, I think like that, that theater thing was one, one, idea that I was messing with it that was, you know, kind of that's somewhat along the lines of like, it's, it's a mix of consumption and, uh, creation. Right. But like a lot of the, the prototypes that I was you know, interested in outside of the, the tangible coding one were like, um, <laughs> um, are you familiar with, uh, you know, kind of Verlay physics at all in games, the concept, uh, yeah, the audience, mean, but our audience okay, might, not the audience be, may so. not be. Yeah. So, um, basically it's, uh, I'm sort of trying to think of a reference point, like, I don't know, world of goo might be a popular example or like certain bridge builder games, like use this tech pretty often. So soda constructor, right. Uh, fantastic contraption is an example in VR that kind of does a similar thing. Right. So basically you have a bunch of particles. It's, it's a physics system, right. Where you have particles that move through the world, they collide, but the particles all have constraints between them. And usually those are rendered as lines or, or, you know, um, mm -hmm. And they behave like springs where they don't let the particles get too close or too far. Yeah. And they can be stiff springs and Verlay comes from, it uses Verlay integration because the integrator is more stable than like an Euler integrator, for example. Right. So you can actually apply these constraints um, and, and kind of like do, you know, uh, uh, you get like a reasonable amount of stability. It tends to not explode. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> you know, it tends to, uh, but it's, it's fun to play around with. So, so, you know, I was thinking about doing like a, you know, a Verlay builder in VR or like a sign distance field, uh, kind of editor thing, right? Like, uh, you know, sign distance field is, uh, you know, you, you, you can define an object, uh, basically by the distance to, uh, you know, it's, it's surface or interior, right? It's actually, it's signed because it's, uh, both positive distance and negative distance. Um, so distance is surface, right? Um, so for example, a sphere would be defined by, you know, it's the distance to its center point. Um, and you know, you're inside or outside based on the distance to its center point. And there, there are various techniques to actually render that, right? You could render it as polygons, you know, using marching cubes or some other meshing system. But one common way to render it is actually render it directly, um, using sphere tracing or, or ray marching. So, you know, it's kind of shoot a ray out from the camera position to the pixel you're looking at, right. Or, or you're, you're trying to draw, evaluate the entire distance field 
um, which you can do. You can either store it explicitly, like in a 3D texture, um, or you can, the common way to do it is to kind of uh, calculate it implicitly, and then you, you move along the ray whatever the shortest distance you got from that method. Um, and if you're close enough to a surface by some, you know, margin, you kind of decide you've hit the surface and you draw that as a solid hit. If you get far enough away from any, if you march far enough away and you haven't hit anything, then you, it's probably a miss and you just draw a background color or something like that. Right. So the, the, the kind of technical details of rendering, uh, you know, sign distance fields aren't super important for this, but they're cool. People should go learn how to do this stuff. It's, it's really fun. Yeah, you should, you should. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's more of that, like, you know, uh, and there's, there's some, there's, they're not really t- too many VR ones, but there's tools like clay souls within unity and dreams, obviously in, on PS4, uh, is another one that uses sign distance fields kind of as its base, even though it does not do the simple ray march because the scene complexity is way too high. It's a lot, it's going to be more complex than that, but it does do a ray march kind of on the micro level to actually draw the surface. Um, and, uh, Magica CSG is another one and that's a PC, a free PC tool, which would probably be closer to this thing. Um, you know, and it's 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 nice for modeling because you're dealing with volumes and shapes instead of, you know, edges and points and polygons. Yeah, like it handles intersections really nicely. Yeah, so, so intersections aren't as weird. You don't have to worry about, you know, managing mesh, mesh topology or T-junctions or like kind of there's a lot of ugly things that happen with meshes that require a lot of hand-holding and babysitting that you know, you don't really have this problem with sign distance fields. Um, there, there is actually one relatively popular, uh, VR sign distance field modeler called, uh, medium. And it was, it was Oculus medium. It became Adobe medium. And now I believe it's called substance modeler. Um, Oh, substance picked it up. Yeah. Well, Adobe picked it up and Adobe picked up substance and oh. they rebranded a lot of their 3d tools as substance because it's a better brand, it's a better brand. Yeah. It's yeah. that, that kind of thing. Right. So, so it's, it's all under Adobe's umbrella. But, um, yeah. Um, so, but this one would be like a lot simpler, probably be like a simple would have, would have been a simple version of, of Magicka CSG. So, so yeah, I had all these ideas for creative tools, uh, in VR, um, and, and still have more. And I think that's really like the strength or one of the, the major strengths of VR that gets overlooked sometimes hmm. that I think the problem is, and, and we hinted at this earlier is that, you know, a lot of the time people want to, people aren't building, some of these apps are built from first principles, but a lot of times these apps aren't really built for first principles. It's like, let's add a VR mode on top of a game engine editor, right? Right. And you quickly run into, well, okay, you have to translate all the UI from the whole game engine to VR, right? So you end up with a lot of floating panels that have like hard to read UI. You end up with, you know, maybe navigation methods to navigate a large level that aren't ideal, right? So a lot of this stuff didn't really take off. And like performance, a lot of time game engine editors aren't really performance tuned <laughs> as in most of the time, right? Because, oh, well, if you're, if you're editing a level on a desktop PC and, you know, it runs at 10 FPS or 15 FPS, that's interactive rates, right? Right. You know, even if the game itself needs to run at 60 or 120 or whatever, right? Um, 
But in VR, you want to keep higher frame rates consistently. You want to keep 90 or 120. Yeah, like 10 or 15 is unlivable. 10 or 15 is, is, is vomit-inducing. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, there, there, there are a bunch of challenges there where, like, that made it not really usable. But you can imagine a game development tool um, that exists entirely in VR was designed, uh, you know, kind of initially for VR, right, that just works. Um, mm-hmm. So with some of my, to kind of bring it back to, to stuff that I've actually worked on and, and, and some ideas that I've had as well in Oculus home, like eventually I started working on an actual scripting language. Um, and the initial, uh, implementation of that was just kind of a list of commands that you could apply to objects. Right. So, so it was a very like uh turtle style programming language. There's actually in that version, there's actually no, what we might traditionally consider, uh, programming right there was there were no variables there were no um there were no operators uh you know you you weren't doing any data transforms really it was just a list of commands and the reason for that was one it was an easy thing to bootstrap but also i kind of looked at three parts especially of an end user game creation system right and breaking into three parts is entirely arbitrary it's there's more stuff going on than just these three right but there are three things that i could focus on that that would take most of my attention right and uh the first one is behaviors which i decided was most important because if you're if you can write interesting programs or you have a cool ui or whatever to build those programs but they don't actually do anything which doing something generally means like moving them or, you know, changing their material properties, uh, you know, assuming that objects are mostly 3D meshes, 3D models, right, in, in these environments, which they pretty much are, right? Some of them are particle systems and stuff like that, but playing animations, if they're animated, uh, playing audio, um, there's only a handful of things that you really, that are really output, especially when you're talking about, you know, kind of a higher level uh, game creation environment that you care about. And most of those are moving things or like checking collisions, right? You know, I added, uh, collision events. I added, uh, you know, some input events. Um, and I had behaviors to, you know, rotate this thing by 90 degrees over one second. Right. And you could, you could edit these things and there were like are all kind of parameters that were hard coded. Right. Um, and that was, you know, that, that wasn't like, it right obviously <laughs> but that was a good start um yeah those are just like assumptions made so that you can focus on the part of the problem you want to focus on yeah yeah and then uh the other the other portions of that were kind of the uh the actual programming portion which is like you could call it you'd call it logic or you could call it scripting or you could call it you know vm or or whatever you want to call it in this case right and um and then the last part would be uh, the UI. So that was kind of my my stage my my stage plan, right? Where I did like you know behaviors first, and, and like okay, these are an interesting set of behaviors where you can do a lot of things if you build on them, right? And then you know kind of logic second. So I wrote a VM, and then UI last, right? And UI is actually the hardest in VR. It's the hardest or the most interesting part. It's I mean it's the hardest everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh so I didn't so in Oculus Home the trick is I didn't really get to UI. I just had this list based UI. I wrote the VM <laughs> actually. So, you know, I, I could actually apply some logic, but without a UI to actually, you know, write any code, it was it wasn't easily testable. You know, I was hard coding some test and that's it, right? And then kind of 
feeling like I was close to getting this uh, scripting system working on Oculus Home, you know, that, that was, that got pretty far along. And then I was uh, moved to a, di- a different organization than the team I was in. Right. Until I need to work on scripting an entirely different program, which is Facebook horizon, which had no interactive behavior <laughs> when I started. Right. So, you know, effectively I kind of rewrote <laughs> a lot of the work I had done, but not entirely. Um, in this new environment, right? Was that like a useful exercise to do in, in helping you like distill your thinking on this a little bit or like get closer to the kind of the, the heart of the issues or was it just like, all right, fine, got to rewrite it, you know, mechanical work. Yeah. (laughs) A little bit of both, a little bit of both. You know, I could simplify some of my ideas a little bit. Um, Initially I actually planned for the long term goal to, for it to be a multi kind of a multi application, maybe not the language itself, right? Because it becomes tricky when you start talking about UI, right? Um, and in different environments and across different game engines, uh, you know, where you assuming you still want to use that game engines ob- game object model, which in this case, both of both Oculus Home and uh, Facebook Horizon did. There's not a lot of room to port that aspect of it, but the VM could theoretically be entirely portable. It's pretty, it was pretty self-contained. Um, that was not the case in reality, right? Cause I just like, Oh, you have three months to get scripting working in this new app. Right. So, but yeah, it did help me to find some or refine some of the ideas. Right. And I, I pushed things a little bit further. Um, clearly because I worked on it longer. Am I remembering that it didn't end up shipping? I think there was a Twitter thread that I read of you talking about that at one point. Um, Oculus Home did not ship any scripting stuff. So there was some some working scripting stuff in Oculus Home. It didn't launch, right? Oculus Home is interesting because it is a live product, right? So um, it shipped in the sense of like, if you had the right uh, internal Facebook employee ID and you were like uh you know whitelisted for it uh you could use it right right and it was it was like in the program and theoretically if i turn that on for everyone everyone could get access to it and then it wasn't it wasn't quite it wasn't far along you know i I kind of described how far the polished uh work i did was and it wasn't far enough to actually be considered a usable uh product right but facebook horizon shipped it's out in beta it's it's not it has not launched. There's no open beta, right, of Facebook Horizon. It's invite only. And what is Facebook Horizon? So Facebook Horizon is um, a social VR application, right? So you can you basically go and there, there's there's other ones that are as popular or maybe like more popular. They're definitely more popular in terms of users, like Rec Room um, or VR Chat are the two two probably most popular ones. But it's basically you know kind of a multiplayer game slash creation and game creation environment, right? Uh, slash online hangout space. So when we talk about the metaverse, a lot of the metaverse apps right now are actually really just these things. They're not really like, you know, I, I don't know. Metaverse is a super loaded term, so I'm not going to say they're not the real metaverse or they're, they're, no, they're I think, I think it's fair to say that because like <laughs> it's, it's fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Like there's, there's, there is definitely a, as we talked about earlier, a business reason to make, uh, you know, the new buzzword, the new hot thing, the, you know, get people excited about it. And it is, it is not the vision of the future that we technologists have been chasing. Yeah, that's, that's fair. So for metaverse, uh, 
or for these apps, right? Like they're, they're kind of like many metaverses or whatever, right? Uh, or they could just be considered like online games with relatively robust end user creation tools as well, right? So usually there's a world builder, there are multiplayer, so you know, four to 100 players can join, depending on the maximum player count, can kind of join together in a session and play games together or just hang out and talk to each other, right? Um, you can build spaces and share them, right? And you build spaces with, usually with uh, various shape primitives, sometimes with meshes that you can import, um, you know, from a third-party uh, modeling tool, Um uh, you know, you can kind of change material settings on them, et cetera. So it's, you know, it's a creative tool, but they usually have some sort of scripting or interactive behavior in them as well. So you can make your own games, even though the scripting is, um, usually, but not always visual scripting, some integrate Lua or other, you know, text-based languages. I think like Roblox is not a VR app, right. But Roblox is probably the most popular and, and, uh, by far, uh, version of this it's a little bit different um in the sense not not just not being vr but that the creation tools are very much outside of the game that most users are experiencing um right and that's mostly true for vr chat as well but in rec room and facebook horizon it's kind of the the expectation is that the world building tools are part of the game right and not everyone's going to world build some people will many people will consume but you can easily just go into the world building tools and decide to make your own space or dive into scripting if you want to do something interactive and that'll be that'll be big like it like having you know to me like you uh, you referenced roblox um i think the one that maybe arguably popularized this in the first place was second life and there again if my memory serves the editing tools were outside of the actual playable environment yeah they were and it's this dream of like you know something like a hypercard or like like dreams on ps4 but in a collaborative space where there are lots of people who can you know be together editing something and you see that a little bit with like with minecraft communities where it's like a bunch of people get together on a server and like you know build a the the giant statues that were carved into the cliff face in in lord of the rings or that kind of thing, like like make a you know scale model of the USS Enterprise or something like that. But like putting it into VR should with you know some of these other technologies you've talked about, like maybe with you know SDF for modeling, so that the modeling is just like that much richer and feels more like working with actual clay in the real world rather than working with like triangles that can do all sorts of you know degenerate shit. It it just feels like we're on the the cusp of kind of pulling together a lot of these threads in a in a really satisfying empowering way which is exciting and so it's cool to hear that like like facebook of all companies i i like heard of horizon but i haven't heard exactly what it is and what it's about so it's cool to hear that like the plan is the editing tools are in the environment that even consumers will will be in but if they so choose they can go from being a consumer to a creator without having to you know do what we do now where it's like how do you go from being a consumer of software to a creator of software well you got to go get a you know a tool chain and an editor and learn how to compile code and you know jump through all of those hoops just like i think shortening that gap between consumer of a thing and creator of a thing is is unambiguously good to do 
Yeah. Yeah. And like a, a lot of my, I mean, I had a, I have a lot of influences, right? Like when working on this stuff, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they see the tools, they're just like, oh, it's cool. It's VR scratch, which is like, that's kind of the reductive version of it. It is pretty much VR scratch, right? Like in the sense of like, it's a block based editor, right? Um, for actually editing logic for the code, right? I hinted at this, but I didn't actually get to it, but I actually didn't implement UI for uh, Facebook Horizon. I did mostly behaviors and even in Horizon, I did mostly behaviors and uh, like I did the, the almost all of the VM, right? Um, in your translation of the work that you started on home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, they had they had other folks work on UI, um, which I can start. I'll, I, I think not right this minute, but maybe a little bit later, I'll talk about some, some UX ideas that I had, uh, that I didn't try out. I get a chance to try out, but yeah, it's, it's shipped. It's out there. People are building stuff with it. Um, you know, I think the, the kind of scratch type editor, the reason why horizon has that is, and, and at one point there was a like kind of, um, node based editor in horizon like earlier like this never shipped or anything this was never public but we actually did implement a node-based editor right and there's this idea of like uh what what people were calling black box scripts right where it's like um you know and i think part of this was uh you know like i said i did a i, I wrote an entire vm about three months uh and it's a very simple vm right it's not anything to brag about or or, or, or anything right but it's like it it, it works but i think there was a, a little bit of uh, hesitancy as to whether or not anyone could could uh, get a full visual scripting language working in their time in the time frame that they wanted to at least get to alpha because uh, <laughs> everything came in kind of hot right so so there were like things that felt like they were hedging bets and not necessarily ideal um, for the for the product uh, but one of them was to to do kind of these these uh, black box scripts which were mostly higher level logic written in C sharp. And then you can wire it together. And that was actually pretty promising. It's just the the nodes themselves in VR, when you talk about fully 3D node and node and wire placement, it's already hard to manage nodes in 2D, like on a on a surf on a plane, on a 2D plane. In 3D space, it's like a nightmare, right? You have 3D spaghetti, right? You you can have things behind you, right? Like occlusion's a big problem. You can have nodes occluding each other. Right. And this is the, this is one of the challenges um that I haven't really talked about about programming in 3D for real, right? Like actually building full you're you're placing objects or or placing text or, or or you know whatever you use to represent your your kind of you know programming elements, right? In full 3D, occlusion becomes a problem. Things being behind you become a problem suddenly, right? So uh, it was definitely a problem. Uh, and, you know, performance is also a problem, right? When you have so many nodes, you have X amount of nodes. Rendering, it slows things down, right? So so that got kind of removed entirely, even though there were some things there that were promising. And there are other environments um, that have gone that with that approach. Um, I think... Uh, there's a there's an app called Neos VR that had scripting like that kind of around the same time. Uh, Rec Room has similar kind of node based scripting, right? And uh, a lot of the ways people solve it is and Dreams actually does scripting like this, both in VR and like in 2D um, with with kind of a microchip circuit thing. But they're really like nodes, right? And they they do kind of data flow uh, 
programming with, with these, these nodes that they call microchips. Um, and usually the way to solve it is to still constrain most of the nodes to a plane, right? Uh, so you kind of have a window in 2D in the 3D world, right? And, and also making, making it like a somewhat zoomable UI where you can collapse and expand node graphs, right? So, I mean, I think Horizon could have worked with a, with a node-based UI if we went that approach, but, um, you know, I think blots work well. Um, the, the kind of one regret with the UI that they ended up having, and, you know, I wasn't really involved in this, but I was hoping that, you know, the language would, would maybe uh, influence some of this, was that it still required that users spend a lot of time on a virtual keyboard. And the idea there was to not do that. And I had a, I have a, you know, kind of going back to the Luna, the Luna editor influence, right? Um, I had a bunch of ideas for number picker, pickers and vector pickers and, you know, rotation gizmos and stuff, right? Where you, generally speaking, you would never touch the keyboard to input constants, right? And then for variables, you would name them once and you just copy and, and paste them, right? And for the, the block base editor, it's kind of, the the final block based editor ended up being very much driven by, you know, it's still like kind of a flat 2D UI, right? You know, a lot of people are familiar with Scratch. It's so you don't have free canvas placement like you do in Scratch a lot of the time. It's still like kind of a list of things, right? But you can it's kind of an AST editor, right? Where you you you, you get empty slots in the in the blocks and you can put things in the blocks, right? Originally, I actually wanted to use the exact same 3D world building tools to build the AST for the scripting language, which meant it would be kind of two and a half D, right? And I was uh, inspired by uh, inspired by Scheme Bricks, which you know is, is has kind of a two and a half D uh, look from rendering, right? And there are various points where the Horizon scripting language was kind of two and a half D, but they had apparently they had like a design meeting internal. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there, but you know, it feels like they had a design meeting or something. And across the app, they're like, we need to unify the design of this thing and we're going to go with flat design. So everything's flat mm-hmm. now. Right. <laughs> uh, which is, you know, I, I, I kind of hinted at like big companies, right. And doing stuff. Right. But for, for, for a block based scripting language is actually really cool or potentially really cool to like be able to reach into, you know, your, your blocks instead of just hover over them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and occlusion is not so bad in that case. Right. And you could highlight blocks and stuff. And for, for folks who haven't seen scheme bricks, like it, it looks kind of like a scratch, like, programming environment but the blocks are sort of stacked on top of one another in a way where it sort of it makes like sort of like a little triangular kind of shapes coming out towards you a little bit which um looks really neat like it's it's this kind of it has almost a kind of a fractally look to it but it is still like if you took away the graphical aspect of it it is still lines of text code kind of one after another with indentation so it's like perfectly readable as code it just uses the blockiness of the ui to imbue a sense of depth to it so it really helps you get a sense of like what stuff is nested inside of other stuff because that stuff comes closer and closer to you in how it appears yeah and you can think of it as like stacking blocks like in a tower right where you have a base 
you know, that's kind of your, your entry point or, or, you know, your, your top level event or whatever your, your, your main function or your function definition, whatever. Yeah. You'd stack statements and then you'd stack operators and, and expressions inside of there. Right. Um, it's like literally turning the, the indentation into depth information where the more indented something is, the closer it is to you. Exactly. And that's, that's kind of like, it, it, it actually started out a little bit more like that. And then it, they, they've moved away from that since, but, uh, I also had an idea that got vetoed quickly by UX designer, but, uh, in order to, um, reduce the number of options you were selecting from a list or a category, right? The idea was, or the number of blocks or whatever you call it, the idea was to once again, take advantage of VR and you, you, you basically pull out, and I was probably inspired by like weird role-playing game dice or something, right? But you'd pull out like a cube instead that ha- would have operators on each of the faces and you could rotate the block and then, you know, place that. So I don't know, there were like weird things to kind of like make that scratch UI more 3D and a lot of them didn't get in, but or some of them got in and kind of got, got reduced, right? But it is still, it is still like a little bit compromised in the sense of that it's like safe, right? It's not really, you know, it's like, okay, how can we use VR for this thing that, that mostly exists, but it's not really like an entirely brand new paradigm, you know, and, and that gets into some of the stuff that I wanted to prototype and I would have if I was maybe on the Oculus Home team and, you know, had a slightly longer prototyping phase, but maybe I wouldn't have, right? Um, you know, I kind of mentioned Salud Automata before, and I was pretty heavily inspired by this environment called Movable Feast Machine. Uh, it, it, it showed up on the Future of Coding Slack. I believe it's Dave Ackley is the creator of it. And uh, it's this thing called Robust First Computing, right? Where it's, it's basically you have uh, a grid of small, independent-ish. I'm not sure if they're actually... Uh, independent, like in the implementation, if they're actually independent threads or processes or, you know, running on different machines, but they're modeled as independent processes and they could theoretically be independent processes. And the horizon scripting language actually does this too, where like each individual script instance on an object is treats itself as a distributed independent process effectively. Uh, and they communicate via message passing and message passing can happen locally or through, through the network. And theoretically, it could have been threaded and stuff like that, even though it wasn't. Um, it's like in, it's inherently meant to be async. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I was really inspired by that. And I, like I, once again, I was already doing kind of the in the path of doing the message passing stuff, even even with Oculus Home in the early days. Right. You know, I started developing a message passing system where, you know, it's it ends up looking a lot like broadcast and scratch to people or just like a delegate in C sharp or, or something. Right. And like different people have different ways of, of thinking of it, but you know, it was really inspired by, you know, kind of small talk and spe- specifically an environment called croquette, which is like uh early, you know, we talked about second life, but even before second life, there's an early like distributed 3d web type environment uh, called croquette that had like kind of ways to sing. And this wasn't the, the networking model because it it's, it is, for both Oculus Home and for Facebook Horizon, they're peer-to-peer networks, but you have a fixed number of clients. You don't have like you don't have people like moving through space and connecting to a different variable rate of clients. You don't have to sync across a large kind of distributed 
peer-to-peer world, as cool as that would be, right? So the problem to solve is, like, there aren't the same synchronization problems just don't exist, right? Like, you send a reliable RPC or something to a client, they'll get it eventually, right? There's latency issues involved and stuff like that, but, you know, for, for scripting, it, it's not, like, the end of the world in most cases. Yeah, so so for the movable feast machine kind of inspiration... The idea is like I wanted to play around with using cellular automata, so you basically have like a voxel editor in VR that you're using to write your code, right? And whether whether it looks like a wire world thing or whether it looks more like uh, movable feast machine, which has a scripting language called ULAM, right? Where it's like you 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 place nodes and each object would be a, a, a node, right? Um, but you'd still write you know kind of code of some sort to decide how those nodes work, but you do it at a very, at a more granular level than maybe like an object, like, like, and I guess I haven't really described what an object is in like these kind of social VR apps, right? It's, it's really like a collection of shapes or a 3D model that kind of like form an, a literal object that can transform by itself in the, in the space. Right. And there's a single script, a single script could be associated with that object. Right. So, like a, a cellular automata inspired thing would probably be more granular than that, right? Where you'd have multiple cells. You know, it, it's it's tricky to think about how it would interact with. You know, you know, it's it's cool. Like if you're just making Minecraft, or you're just making a voxel world. Easy, right? Because everything's voxels already. Everything's on a grid. You know, cellular automata make a lot of sense. If you have more freeform placement of meshes in the world, it's it's tricky to think about how well that works with the cellular automata approach, right? Like you can do things with you know there's still input and output. You trigger like a cell, a cell gets triggered, you know, assuming the wire world approach, a cell state changes based on a specific input, like a collision event. And then you have, you know, a bunch of intermediate logic cells that do stuff and route a signal based on that input. And then it will route to a specific output or convert to a specific output. Like it's tricky because it didn't really work with these environments. So it, it, I'm not sure how worth it. It would be prototyping that one. But, uh, you know, it's definitely something I considered, especially when you think about having a, a volumetric space to deal with. Right. And, um, there was a 2d, there are, there are some 2d programming languages that kind of do this, like, uh, you know, that aren't necessarily completely cellular automata based. Like there's one called ASCII dots, which is kind of like moving. Uh, and I don't know if people saw it, but it's still, it's still text based, but you basically draw ASCII art to move a ball through like kind of a pipe system or, you know, I, I don't know what the best metaphor is, right. But, and there's different transforms and stuff and you can like split the ball or like combine the ball, destroy balls and stuff like that. Or, you know, they, they can change state of various cells in the world. I, I think of it almost like trains on a, on a, on a little weird railway system. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's probably a, the, the, a good metaphor for it. Uh, let's see. What else did I, what else did I consider? Uh, there's a, there's an environment that Ken Perlin made um, called Chalk Talk, which is gesture-based, right? Um, so you, you draw. And I think he demonstrated in VR, actually, at one point, right? Well, I haven't seen that. I've only seen him demo it, like, on a like on a projector kind of screen. Yeah, I've, I've, I tried it. Like, I, the, the source was released, and I tried it myself. And I've, I saw demos on the projector only. And, like, in his videos, I think he's only done that projector demos but i think he said it worked in vr or something or he was maybe he was just planning on porting it to vr and it didn't happen i'm not sure but yeah i did think a lot about 
gesture based systems, you know, and Chalk Talk's gesture matching was kind of lackluster for me <laughs> and doing good gesture matching is kind of hard, but they're, they're, it would be kind of easy to beat them. Right. So that was one thing I considered and it might be fun. You know, another variant of gesture based would be just to do, and this is kind of, this is not future. It's pretty present of coding. Um, especially kind of in light of Facebook has released another social VR app that's focused on enterprise recently called Workrooms. And Workrooms actually uses the same tech. I mean, Engine, of course, because, you know, they both use Unity in the hood, but there's a lot of extra tech for networking and avatars and, you know, kind of world management and just random features and, you know, gameplay code and stuff uh, required in Horizon. And they use the same code base as Workrooms and, and Horizon, even though they're doesn't appear to be any scripting or world building or anything like that in workrooms. Theoretically, there could be, right? But workrooms also has, you know, an infinite whiteboard. And and I think one thing that came out with workrooms, and we talked about this earlier when we were talk- had the screen discussion in Oculus Home, was that, you know, there's a little bit of a lack of imagination, right? It's like, okay, we can be cartoon avatars in an office conference room that looks exactly like a Facebook office conference room. But now we have an infinite whiteboard instead of a finite whiteboard. And it's like, well, you know, I, maybe I don't want to write on a whiteboard. Yeah. Like, why can't we be on the beach or something or like on some fantasy world or, or whatever? Right. Like regardless of that aspect of it, it, it might be fun to, you know, as, as people probably know, like big tech companies have a really big whiteboard interview culture and just whiteboard culture in general. So, so I thought it'd be fun. And one of the big complaints about whiteboard interviews is, is, uh, you can't actually execute the code, right? So, and this is, this is like half serious, half trolling, right? <laughs> but I thought it might be fun to do a thing where you actually can like write. And I, I actually haven't seen this demoed, especially not in VR or like even on a smart whiteboard, but maybe it exists somewhere, right? Where you can write code on a whiteboard and it actually executes, right? Right. Like it does like, <laughs> OCR or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. It does like gesture recognition stuff. And then like, which once again, that's not like super interesting from, it's, it's interesting from a, from an interaction standpoint, right. Where it's like, there are fun things you can do. You could potentially add to a whiteboard coding environment that you couldn't do in a standard IDE. Right. To me, this feels almost the same as like some of the tools that allow you to put executable examples inside of your documentation just to make sure that like if you change something about the thing that's being documented and it breaks the example, like you get a compile time error or whatever. You know, there's this space that has previously been used for talking about computation, but it hasn't been a computational space. And we should like it's like incrementing from where we are now to having smart dust. Any space where we're talking about computation that is not in itself a computational space like that's that seems like low hanging fruit for somebody to figure out how to do it and and make it like let's get the actual dynamic medium to be everywhere where we are talking about the dynamic medium. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then like, even though you don't really see it in the, I think some of the, the, the things that shift definitely in horizon, you know, especially at the time, like I was pretty inspired by dynamic land. when you talk about bringing computation to space, right. And dynamic land explicitly says it's not an AR or a VR space. Right. So it's kind of like, not, you know, not in the spirit of dynamic land to be like, let's just make dynamic land in VR, right? Um, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. But like one thing about dynamic land that I liked was the idea of, and, and I think this did actually 
come through in Horizon a little bit, right? And via the message passing system and, and some other systems in place was that like objects or, or in the case of dynamic land, it's a page, right? It's, it's like your, whatever your atomic program thing both has a physical location and might have other physical things associated with it that aren't code, right? You know, and sometimes they have behaviors, sometimes they're just visual, but it doesn't, doesn't really matter, right? Like it's the case, uh, it definitely in the horizon, right? But that they're, they're all kind of self-contained things and they can work together as a whole, but they don't necessarily require the whole, right? So it's not like a whole world program, which, you know, came up as a, as a possibility, right? But it, 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 it couples things in a way that's not as like one is shareable or like as remixable, um, but also like that, that decoupling and like, it's interesting because I feel like a lot of programmers, you know, professional programmers get really scared when you talk about decoupling things to the point where, you know, oh, any object can send a message or make a claim or whatever, and it'll just do something because it's like, well, you don't know what else, like you bring something to the environment that could completely wreck the rest of the environment. Right. And it's like, yeah, it introduces fragility. Yeah. 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 But it's like. Maybe that's not a bad thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, especially when, you know, users have control of what's in the environment, right? And, like, can can decide what, uh, you know, one thing I really wanted to do in Horizon, and, and they didn't implement it, but they talk about safety a lot in social VR, especially because they're Facebook, right? Uh, but the, the really only the safety features are, like, there's a recording feature, which has questionable privacy implications already for some people, right? Cause it's like, why is this app always recording my gameplay and sending it to Facebook in some cases? But theoretically that's actually a privacy feature because it will, if, if, if you get reported, it sends the gameplay footage so they can review it. Um, but once again, it's all surveillance uh, <laughs> tech, right? Uh, ultimately. And then, then there's like a, a safety button and a panic button but like the problem with safety button and the panic button is they require, or even like reporting or banning someone, right? Is they all require user input and reaction to something happening that they don't like in the program. And it's actually easier to just take off the headset and never log into the thing than it is to like deal with panic buttons and emergency modes and like all this stuff, right? It's easier for the user just to say, this isn't for me, take off the headset not log in ever again, right? That's the easiest thing, right? At least right now. Like, I mean, you could say the same thing about Twitter or any other case where you get cyberbullying, but it's like the, the, I think the social momentum to actually participate in something once it becomes a part of the culture is like, that's a very, very fundamentally strong force that, so I think it is important to be thinking about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it's important, definitely. But um, like, I'm more hitting at that, like, there can be more, like, even in Twitter, once again, you do proactively ban a lot, but who you follow and, like, who follows you makes a big difference in your experience, right? And that kind of happens before you, the, the ban is reactive, right? And you still need those reactive elements. But if you only have reactive elements, so you mostly have reactive elements. And obviously who your friends are and, and, and Horizon and stuff matter and, like, what spaces you enter matter. But, um you know, harassment is a big problem, especially for women in VR spaces, right? And it's, you know, physical harassment, like, even though it's not physical, physical as in real life physical, it's physical, and people are entering your personal space. It might as well be the same thing. Like, the whole point of making this technology more personal is not just to kind of have it, you know, both ways, where it's like, yeah, it's so intimate and personal, and it's like, you're really there and inside the world. But when, you know, somebody does something inappropriate, oh, it's just, you know, virtual reality. 
my phone is an extension of my mind in the same way where it's like, I don't feel comfortable giving my phone to anyone, not because it's like, I don't trust them, but because it's just like, it's like the same way I, I wouldn't feel comfortable, like detaching my arm and giving it to somebody. This is now a part of my being. I completely am on, on the page of, you know, we need to respect people's physical autonomy within virtual spaces to the full extent that we socially respect one another in non-virtual spaces, or at least the way we should respect one another in, in non-virtual spaces. Yeah, the way we should. The, definitely the way we should. Yeah. But, you know, you can, because it is a virtual space and it's immediated, like, theoretically, you can do more. So one thing I really want to do, at least in the scripting space, and a lot of this was inspired by Second Life again and various attacks that you saw in Second Life that were enabled by scripting or, like, you have flying objects, flying people's faces, right, and stuff like that, right? Or you could... Or, or other inappropriate things on live TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Or you could, uh, you could, you know, teleport someone to, uh, you know, inappropriate place or like move them super, you know, like physical things that would physically change and, and VR that can actually make people physically sick. Right. So like my thought was to have like a permission system and, and you know, permission systems aren't like future of coding really even right. Like, uh, like, you know, you have permissions in Android and there, there are known issues with permissions as well, where people just say yes to everything because they don't really understand. But, you know, you, if you can imagine permissions in a VR scripting language, right. Or, you know, VR, uh, worlds or, you know, however you want to, whatever level of granularity you want to put at, right. Where you could say like, oh, I don't want anyone in this world to be able to access my name. Like, in a, like, so I'm going to hide the name, but also scripts can't get my player name, right? I don't want them to be able to read my position in a script, right? So, so that way you can't have objects that chase you or, or enter your personal space. Uh, I don't want anyone to be able to change my movement parameters or teleport me, right? And it could go further where, like, you could say, like, oh, I want this world to actually be entirely static, like, I don't, I don't want to run script, like, no script mode, right, effectively, right, in the browser. Um, like, and Horizon doesn't implement any of that stuff, as far as I know. Uh, uh, you know, um, and those are, those are thoughts on, like, even on, like, a, on a technical level. There's also, like, the whole suite of things where you can build these systems to embody principles. And I, I think one of my favorite examples of this is like SimCity, like the original SimCity was presented as, you know, this is an objective depiction of the, you know, the systems in a sort of a systems thinking framework that are taking place within a city. And of course, as like some really great recent reporting has shown, no, it actually is this like, really wildly unrealistic model of this disproven sort of like libertarian utopian idea of what you know cities should be run like and it like embeds that within the the model of the simulation in the game so that you get all this like almost cartoonish deviation from reality because it's sort of backdooring in this worldview and and i love that as like a like a counter example like whenever you're building a, a kind of a virtual space that's meant to like embody parts of the real world, you're going to be doing that through a framework. And what framework you choose will establish the culture and the norms and the relationships between real people, as well as like the virtual relationships between systems and, and even things like the way you consider like how to model communication between objects and like your idea of like no script or that kind of thing. Like those things have cultural ramifications. And so I think if you are 
deliberate and conscious about how you establish those kind of systems and and what things you're simulating from the real world and how you're simulating them like you can have a ton of leverage over what culture emerges and what is acceptable and and how people will like treat each other and and just as one more example of this one of my favorite ever video games is a game called journey and one of the things that they did in the design of that game because this game came out i think in 2011 maybe a little earlier it was at the time where online multiplayer games were just this absolute toxic like cesspool of harassment and people swearing and using racial slurs constantly and like the big you know microsoft and sony and whatever trying to clamp down moderation and, and it being this cat and mouse game and journeys premise is that it's a multiplayer game that it's sort of like uh, you know spoilers 10 years in the future you're not supposed to necessarily realize that it's a multiplayer game as you're playing it and they do that by like very carefully allowing like the the sense of another person being in the world with you to seep out in a way where it makes you feel when you're playing it for the first time like there are these other characters here and i can't tell if they're real people or if they're ai's and as you go through the game, which is this like very powerful emotional story told without dialogue or language or anything like that, just told through imagery and the experience of play, you go through this very transcendent emotional experience and you realize that you are going through it together with other people and you get to the end of the game and it's like it's the same exact you know, gamers are playing that game one moment and then they're playing Halo the next moment and are like just swearing at each other miserably. But in this game, you get to the end of it with another person and there's this little like patch of sand on the ground and this culture emerges where it's like you draw like a little heart or like, you know, write this little like expression of your fondness for the other person on the sand on the ground at the end of the game just because of how they constructed the way that you relate to other people uh, and they did this very deliberately and it worked and so i think there are there are absolutely ways that you can structure the way that people are allowed to relate to one another so that it encourages us to like bring out the best parts of ourselves and, and make like really genuine connections rather than just you know indulging in all of our worst impulses yeah, definitely. Like, I, I guess I'm, I guess I'm a little bit cynical because I don't have like a lot of uh, hope that like <laughs> that type of thinking. You know, I've, I've, I've worked like I, I didn't work on Journey at all, but I worked with and I know a lot of people that did work on that game, and they have similar thoughts about like like uh, Phenomena was was founded by two of the uh, developers of Journey, right? Um, so I I've had a lot of discussions about that type of thinking with people, and they almost all been people that have some connection to that team. <laughs> right. And then, you know, you kind of go into uh, a larger company like Facebook that does similar work and there's just kind of like, it, it feels almost like ignorance, right? Like, like, and, and you see it with new, so newer social apps often too, where right? they follow a lot of the same patterns because the focus is really on, uh, you know, user growth and um, virality and, like, you know, a lot of these the engagement and a lot of these, like, you know, even, even if they, they do say like, oh, we want to make a safer or more inclusive place, like the, and I think some of it's also just like systems literacy isn't really great. So, you know, and, and this is, this goes beyond just like software or social media or, you know, online games or, you know, but just like kind of how 
society and politics function in general, right? <laughs> Where like, you know, a lot of systems are taken for granted. Um, you know, they were made as like arbitrary or kind of ad hoc choices, or they were made a long time ago, right? And they become kind of dogma, right? This is, and, you know, obviously this is Future of Coding podcast, so. <laughs> yeah, that's the thesis of this show, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a lot of people feel, feel <laughs> listening to this will feel the same way, right? But, you know, it extends beyond coding as well, right? Where, you know, I entirely agree with that. I actually, I actually would love to see social networks and, uh, you know, social VR programs and, and online games and, you know, anything like it's kind of, especially that's one thing that the whole metaverse kind of push has, has shown, I think at least a little bit like software isn't so siloed. Right. And like, you know, what's the difference between a browser and a game engine, right. Or what's the difference between like a game and a social network or whatever. And like, really there's not that much <laughs> like it's culture. Mostly it's just the culture. Yeah, it's, it's the, it's the culture. And it's just kind of like how serious we consider it. Right. Like if something's for business, it's clearly more important, right. Arguably or more important, right. Or it's going to get more funding. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Or to get more funding. Right. So, or, you know, if it's not like, like, you know, Games often have marketing problems, right? Or they, they only appeal to a, a niche audience, right? Well, that's, that's why I'm turning this into a gaming podcast. Nice. <laughs> People here who are going to be building the future of coding had better love games when they're doing it because there's, you know, just so much value in that that is yeah. ignored. Yeah. But, you know, like, it's all it's all kind of the same thing in a lot of ways. But, but yeah, I think I, I would love to see these apps. And, and Journey is a great example. And like maybe maybe sky and, and like some other things are great examples i think mobile games take a little bit more of those lessons to heart right because they are kind of quick play a lot of the time they are you know like you're gonna get lots of churn and playing against lots of randoms and stuff and like they're they're more ca- a more casual player base so a lot of the time even if people may or may not agree with monetization strategies in some of these games the uh, interaction that you experience is a little bit uh, less toxic i should say not that toxicity doesn't exist but yeah i'd love to see you know a major social network or something that's designed you know with with kindness or community or whatever first uh, and you know obviously that's hard and whether that happens in vr or on mobile or, or wherever it doesn't matter so much right but yeah I'd, I'd like to see that being the first principle rather than like how many users can we get, right? Or how much funding can we get? Or how much money can we make? Or how many ads can we sell? Which is is maybe unrealistic, you know, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I maybe it is unrealistic, or maybe it's just the moment we're in. Like I remember MySpace very fondly because MySpace was sort of on the one hand a social network in the way that Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and all those are social networks about you know people getting together and and talking online and presenting themselves and maybe peacocking a little bit but much in the same way that instagram is like a social network about photos myspace was really a social network about music like it was for musicians at the time it was this just absolute phenomenal thing that happened and now that we're in this era of sort of with the exception of maybe tiktok and instagram and snapchat and a couple of those ones like we're in this era where the dominant social networks are just based on conversation and link sharing and creating the opportunity to inject ad units that are aligned with the way that the network is being used for communication so that they kind of just slip in there a little more easily. And I think that 
maybe what it would take for VR if what becomes like a dominant social relationship on VR is about a thing, like it's about like a creative pursuit in the way that Instagram or MySpace are, like that might. And, uh, you know, Instagram's not a great example because there's plenty of, of problems with that that I think maybe MySpace avoided just because it was so early or like relatively not huge in in mainstream culture compared to social networks of today but i just i feel like like every new technological paradigm is a chance for a do-over and maybe you know maybe the corrupting forces of major corporations will ruin it once again this generation will have to try again in a decade with whatever the next thing is but it just seems to me like you know your cynicism is earned but i'm i'm still gonna take the side of like hope and uh, at the very least using whatever I can to encourage people to like just get weird with it and like try and find ways to make it interesting and inspiring and and about something more than just infinite whiteboards yeah yeah definitely I mean I think the current like at least the current site guys with the with all the metaverse stuff is that and and even apps that aren't calling themselves metaverse right there's like quite a few apps that are that are getting funding or coming out that are all nascent, right? But they're really about like, and a, a lot of these have existed for years on console, right? Like, like some of my inspiration was like WarioWare DIY, right? Which I'm not sure if you've ever played that game, but it was a DS WarioWare game where you could make your own mini games and it used a really, really simple scripting language it had like sound editors and uh you know pixel art editor and stuff right and like they're 30 second games that by the the nature of kind of warioware format and so it, it was really easy to make something but they would do like procedural suggestions and stuff like that but um yeah a lot of people are coming out with new platforms that are designed to make kind of like micro games or like, you know, shareable games by end users. Right. And nothing has really exploded yet in that space. Right. Like Roblox is, is once again, big, but it's not quite that space particular, but you know, as you bring up, like, you know, with, with MySpace, you had music. Right. And that kind of came out of like MP3s being widely available. Right. Um, and people having sharing around that with, with Instagram, you had photos, right? So, and that came out of like mobile being a thing and being able to do like filters on the photos and stuff like that, right? And everyone having a camera on their phone. And later, you know, you saw Snap and TikTok and, and other networks that have taken, you know, video and, and I guess Vine or, you know, some, some other ones that take video and, you know, because everyone has a video camera on their phone as well and, and did that right. But like, we've kind of done like social video, we've done social photos, we've done social music, all those things kind of exist out there. Right. Um, but you know, games are big, but you don't really, and, and obviously writing happened before all of those things, right. Where you had blogging platforms and, and, you know, status updates and stuff like that. But, um, games are big, but like the, difficulty in making a game is significantly higher than producing those things right now. So I, you know, I, I kind of believe that we're getting to a point where people are starting to think about a wide popularity, you know, kind of end user game creation platform, but it's still not quite there. Right. We're like pre pre MySpace level even there, I think like social micro game creation where it's like, I could make a little warrior where blow all of the nose hairs out of this giant person's face micro game as easily as making a tweet, which is kind of like the relationship between like a tweet 
and like a newspaper of old is sort of like the relationship between like some hypothetical future, very easy to make game tool that doesn't exist yet, but that hopefully someday will and what it's like to make a game today. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, and you know, it's a good question of like what the audience is for that and like how many people would engage with that. It might be huge, right? Like you could look at like the Pico eight community, there's a thing called tweet cards, but like, I think, uh, other communities have similar things, right. With like JavaScript and, 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 various 8-bit computers that people do this for and stuff like that, right? Where it's like you, you do like a, a, a program, which is usually kind of a mini demo, but could be a game also that fits in a tweet or two tweets or something like that, right? Yeah, or like the little uh, procedural animations that like Bees and Bombs and all those folks are doing where it's like they make some processing sketch and then make like a little three-second looping GIF and put it in a tweet. And it's like with all of those things, the value isn't so much in the individual tweets or individual little processing sketches but the values like for one the accumulation of all of this culture of having made all of those things and the like the way that that lets humans relate to one another i think is much more valuable than the artifacts themselves but then the the biggest value in my opinion personally is that it gives people really fun ways to grow the skills that are grown by doing that work. And I think like game design is one of those things where like it teaches you systems thinking and it teaches you how to relate to different parts of reality and different parts of the human experience that, you know, like a social network where you're building micro games would be valuable, not because of the silly micro games people make, but because of the kind of the rising tide effect that would have on people's ability to think and reason and all of that kind of you know, skill development that would happen as a second order consequence of, of people making all these little silly games and sharing them with each other. Yeah. 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 I think, I think, I mean, even now I think like the kind of Vanguard is game creation, right. Which, um, or gameplay slash creation, right. Cause you have both right. And in, in any environment, right. Like you have consumers and producers, um, in all of these networks. So I think way in the, when we talk about, future stuff right way in the future i think it'll be or maybe not that far in the future right but like you know five ten years from now right i think it'll be more you know experience rather than game um which is a subtle differentiation yeah what is a game scott (laughs) yeah yeah you know because experience still implies interactive right and if it's in software right does a game have to be interactive i guess it doesn't have to be interactive (laughs) does a game have to have Uh, goals does it have to have a win condition it doesn't have to have goals or win condition i would i would go as far as saying yes it needs to be interactive depending on your definition of interactivity right um yeah where interactivity can mean explicitly withholding interaction yeah like yeah there are games where it's like don't push the button that kind of yeah yeah (laughs) um but you could choose right you have a choice there you could choose to push the button right like a choice could be an entirely um you know in that in in this sense like all almost all vr content even if they call it film or whatever is a game right because you have a choice to where you're looking at right and you could extend that and you can make it super meta and be like well film's a game because you could decide to pause the film or rewind it and that's i think that's a little bit too meta (laughs) for me but like (laughs) but um I don't, I don't, yeah, the, the, what is a game discussion is, is a rabbit hole that I don't want to get into right now. Yeah. So, or, or ever. It's, it's very much like the, what is programming discussion. Now the real discussion is, is programming a game? Yes. 
<laughs> yes, definitely. Programming is definitely a game. <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, or, or games programming. Some games definitely are programming. So, I mean, Photoshop is programming as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I went, went off, we went off on some tangents there, but, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, with the experience thing, sharing thing, you know, you think about metaverse and you think about, you know, kind of large scale reality capture, right? Like being able to bring 3d spaces or 3d objects captured directly. And there, there's, there aren't really decent consumer tools for this. There's not really good rendering for this even at this point. Right. So it's not ready yet, even though there, there's research right in, in NERFs, which is like uh, neural radiance fields, which is a way to take a few photos and basically do some machine learning on it uh, and output a volumetric representation of that photographed object, right? And it's a little bit beyond like photogrammetry or like LIDAR scanning or whatever, right? Because it actually captures a full volumetric radiance field so you can you can like the trick with photogrammetry is that it doesn't really capture, let's say flat surfaces because it's doing, you know, essentially edge detection and it generates a mesh, right? So you don't get transparencies. You don't get, you definitely don't get like volumetric type effects, right? So you can't, you end up with weird kind of looking 3d meshes a lot of the time. And a lot of the time they have, you know, and then they have like textures flashed on them, but they just look like photo textures. They don't necessarily capture the lighting, the lighting is baked into the texture, but yeah, yeah, exactly. And for anybody who has no idea what the hell we're talking about now, <laughs> we're talking about techniques for basically taking an object that is in the physical world and getting a 3d virtual version of that object. Yes. Photogrammetry is like one of the, you know, popular techniques for doing that. This is something that people want to do a lot when you start like trying to make a virtual world is like, I'm holding this thing in my hand. How do I get it into VR? And so there's like emerging techniques for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. When I first, when I first started working in VR, I had a lot of people come up to me and they're like, well, how do I just get an actor in VR? Right. And I'm like, uh, <laughs> you need a, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in the performance capture stage or, you know, whatever, like, you know, and you need like to hire artists to work for three months or four months to get one character. And, you know, it, it's like, and, and there are, easier ways to do that. Even then there were easier ways to do it, right? You could buy something off the asset store. Now you could use like, um, character creator or like unreal meta humans. Like there are various options to get modifiable, decent characters in a game faster. Basically like a character creator from a video game. Yeah. Yeah. It's like an advanced character creator from a video game, but it's still like not like if you just want to capture yourself and get a 3d version of yourself, that can be animated. That's like not, trivial right so you can imagine a, a future where like that does become trivial all of a sudden right and like you can you have a pretty easy way to capture volumetric things in the like 3d things in the world right and, and display them and share them with people and remix them right like i think that'll be pretty massive right and that's like that might be the at that point like if especially we can do it on a relatively large scale that might be the point where you have something that you're calling the metaverse, right? Because I think, you know, as much as, you know, a lot of people want fantasy or even prefer fantasy or prefer like stylized art or graphics, right? I think a lot of people want, like, even if they don't explicitly say that's what they want, like they would prefer being able to experience things that 
remind them of the real the real world or are like in the real world as well. Um, VR tourism is a like if you just ask like people that aren't really gamers that aren't really like you know super heavy tech people necessarily, right? Like VR tourism is one of the number one things, and you, there are VR tourism apps, right? Like, and you could do it with 360 video. You could do it with rebuild this area and kind of do it right but i mean i was on stage with paul mccartney <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah but it's still not like it, it's not quite that compelling right and you can't do it at scale right you you have to you, you do you could do it you do one experience people are like oh that's a pretty cool experience they may not want to return to it but you can imagine something where like there's you know effectively infinite content like a like a youtube right <laughs> like or something right like of these experiences and maybe that's more interesting for people going into the future right um to kind of like circle this back around a little bit to programming sure object capture is like a big part of it and you can get all of these objects looking photorealistic into the virtual world but unless we somehow crack programmability like they're not going to behave in a way that is that is an analog of the real thing and that's like that's why it's like you know, I was on stage with Paul McCartney. Big deal is it's because if I was actually physically on stage with Paul McCartney in the real world, I would want to go over and like play one of the instruments or something like that or like like interact with it in a way that it was giving back to me as much as I was able to give to it. And that was a very high amount. Whereas like virtual tourism and whatever, it's like what you are able to give back to it is almost nothing. And what you are getting from it is like very, very narrow compared to actually being there yeah exactly so you definitely I, I definitely agree that you need interactivity um and i think i i probably should have explicitly stated that right like this is this is on top of you know you, you have your your virtual game creation environment right so you do have programmability right whether it's just like in some cases it might be fine just to set a set of standard properties right and this is this would be something that you could do in uh, rec room or horizon today right where you say this thing is a rigid body so it's physicalized that might be kind of janky in a lot of ways right in the sense of like oh well is it really rigid like what is the collision mesh on it look like you know in today's tech right um but you can imagine a, a future where some of that solved um we have nanite for physics or what have you <laughs> <laughs> yeah that would be that'd be that'd be a thing that'd be that'd be pretty amazing actually um yeah like a like a super super scale position based dynamics uh engine or something like that voxel level collisions or something like that yeah actually wasn't that uh wasn't that uh physx was kind of like that in a sense uh no physx is just like the standard physics engine using unity or unreal right it's a it's a rigid body dynamics engine it doesn't do anything super fancy oh, i thought it, i thought it was doing something like very small per triangle penalty springs or that kind of stuff as opposed to like your havoc derived you know rigid bodies and then soft bodies that have like some amount of deformation i thought it was like more like everything is a soft body and there was some fanciness going on there no not in physics not at least in i mean the thing is they do have a physics has a weird history where they they, they briefly built physics hardware and then they got and i'm not actually sure what it did necessarily but they got bought by nvidia and they have some they have a bunch of products that are named physics right so they do have some physics that run on gpu to do like fluid sim and stuff like that right potentially do but um yeah they haven't really had like that scale or at least if they do or did then 
it, it definitely didn't survive. Like it didn't become part of the. Well, so NVIDIA has a thing which is like separate from physics. That is a GPU position based dynamic system that kind of works that way, right? Not that many apps used it. Like there was a VR demo, tech demo app that NVIDIA made that was like Funhouse that used it. And that stuff isn't widely used in games. Basically, that's the answer. Like in most popular gameplay types, rigid body physics isn't used very heavily um, in games. Uh, you mean soft body physics aren't used very heavily? Rigid bodies are not used very heavily. I thought like everything's, you know, like your character's a, a capsule until it ragdolls. For collision, yes. Yeah, your character's a capsule, but almost all character controllers in shipping games, especially popular games, are fully kinematic, right? They're not, they don't use dynamics, right? Yeah, for like locomotion and that kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, they use like shape casts and stuff, and like most gameplay is just like raycast against static geometry. And but then it'll use dynamics for like you know effects, like you know I shoot the concrete, yeah, and it's gonna you know crumble and little chunks are gonna roll along the ground. Like that's dynamics. Yeah, so so it's actually used a lot. And like vehicle sims are a little bit different, and they tend to use it a little bit more. So there there are certain genres that use it more heavily. It's it's a little bit more common in VR because you can pick up and throw objects and like objects need to feel a little bit more physical. So you see more of it. Um, and there are games that obviously use it for like like a lot of puzzle games use it, you know, like a portal or, or like puzzles in Half-Life 2 or whatever use it because you're kind of picking up cubes and stuff. I worked on a game that used it pretty heavily. My, my opinions about rigid body dynamics that were, were partially influenced by a game, a puzzle game that I worked on called Shadow Physics that used rigid body dynamics pretty heavily for uh, some objects in the world. And it was, it was challenging to tune them and, and stuff like that, right? So, um, I mean, they're used. They're, they're used pretty widely, like most games. I would say Ragdolls is, a, is probably the most common usage in, like, your average video game. That, that, <laughs> Wild, wild tangent. Um, <laughs> this episode of the Future of Coding podcast is brought to you by Glide. Glide's mission is to create a billion software developers by 2030 by making software dramatically easier to build. We all marvel at how successful spreadsheets have been at letting non-programmers build complex software. But spreadsheets are a terrible way to distribute software. They are an IDE and the software built in it rolled into one, and you can't separate the two. One way to think of Glide is as a spreadsheety programming model, but with a separable front-end and distribution mechanism. The way it works right now is that you pick a Google Sheet and Glide builds a basic mobile app from the data in the spreadsheet. You can then go and reconfigure it in many different ways, including adding computations and building some pretty complex interactions. Then you click a button, and you get a link or a QR code to distribute the app. The data in the app and in the spreadsheet will automatically keep in sync. For the Glide team, that's just the beginning. Glide needs to become much more powerful. Its declarative computation system has to support many more use cases without becoming yet another formula language. Its imperative actions don't even have a concept of loops yet, or of transactions. Glide needs to integrate with tons of data sources and scale up to handle much more data. To do all that, Glide needs your help. If you're excited about making end-user software development a reality, go to GlideApps, that's G-L-I-D-E, apps.com slash jobs and apply to join the team. 
My thanks to Glide for helping bring us the future of coding. I think the folks in this community already know Replit. I think they know Replit because of this show and because of the fact that they have been a benefactor of ours for quite some time now, helping to bring us the transcript that you can find at futureofcoding.org slash episodes slash 53 in the case of this particular episode, Um, but also because they keep cropping up on other adjacent shows like the Muse podcast, the most recent episode that I just listened to. Uh, They talk about how Replit kind of fits into the space of Uh, tools that really minimize the number of moving parts that you need to concern yourself with if you're just trying to make a little personal piece of software that's meant to go somewhere and be situated somewhere and just live forever without needing to be you know tended to and maintained and 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 be a constant suck of your attention because in the case of replit they they abstract away so much of the pointless complexity that we need to concern ourselves with if we're doing more conventional styles of programming, like having to concern ourselves with what operating system our software is running on and what, you know, versions of dependencies there are that you need to bring into your project, like having a, a build tool or or some kind of compiler or something like that, or, or concerning yourself with the physical hardware that your software runs on if you, you know, have to do that, if you're setting up some little tool that you want to run constantly and you put it on some home server and now you have to maintain that home server. So Replit, if you are looking for a way to just make a little piece of software and set it up and make it available on the internet somehow and let it just run in perpetuity, it's a wonderful place to do that because they have a very nice contract between your software and the environment that it runs within. And it's a really interesting successor to like what Heroku gives you, for example, where you know Heroku kind of has a very clearly defined contract between your software software and the system so that Heroku can concern itself with changing the underlying things and you don't have to. And so Replit is like like the next generation of that, which is a really interesting way of framing what they offer. It's not just a tool for giving you a nice developer experience or a nice learning environment if you're new to programming or a collection of nice integrations if you want to work with github or a nice multiplayer programming environment if you want to get a bunch of people together in a single screen and have them all you know typing away the the way that we are increasingly used to with things like google docs and notion and what have you but it's also this environment for thinking about making something that just needs to be low maintenance for the long term and so i really enjoyed hearing that framing come up on Muse. And so I guess this is a double plug. Uh, Replit Rules and uh, the Muse podcast is also really good. So uh, go check both of those out. But in particular, because, you know, um, we're here to thank Replit. Um, Go to replit.com and you can sign up for a free account there and get started and play with a REPL in, you know, I don't know how many languages it is now. Let's just say all of them. I have a, a two-year-old daughter, and uh, when I ask her, you know, oh, how many uh, how many raisins would you like? She says, all of them. So, yeah, REPLIT has all of them languages. Uh, go to REPLIT.com. Thanks to REPLIT for sponsoring the transcript and helping bring us the future of coding. Yeah, kind of back to the the experience thing and like what what does programming look like in you know a future metaverse thing where you have perfect reality capture right um you know it's very nascent right extremely nascent tech but i've played with uh open ai codex a little bit it's a gpt3 based uh transformer model that's trained uh and fine-tuned specifically to and it has some extra clearly has a lot of extra software functionality to actually function properly. 
it's 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 basically a coding environment where you write a prompt, right? So you give it a natural language prompt, kind of like documentation or a comment, really, right? Like, so you basically give a comment. Like, one example I did was they have they have an environment that will generate web apps for you, right? Uh, front end web apps, right? So generate JavaScript using you know standard browser stuff. It might be able to generate React code or some some other really popular common stuff that you see on the web as well. My comment was, you know, draw a spinning triangle using WebGL and it generate the code for it. Right. And it works, right. You can run it and it compiles and stuff like that. Right. And, and like they have some, they've, they've had some cool demos. It's currently like in closed beta or alpha or whatever you call it. Um, but if you've messed with transformers at all, if you've messed with, uh, you know, any of these large language models, GPT-2, GPT-3, uh, they do a pretty good job of generating readable text, right? So this generates runnable code, um, this particular model, which is cool. And GPT-3 can actually generate things that aren't, like it can generate well-structured JSON and some other things, so in SVGs, so you can actually generate images kind of with it, but that's kind of an abuse of the system. It's not really designed for that. But uh, you you have, you know, these these large language models that, you know, now they're kind of, still kind of novelties, right? They can be used for writing assistance, um, but they have a bunch of flaws where they'll only generate like 120 or 1,024 characters at once, right? So that's very limited in coding, right? You have to keep like reprompting it and try and keep a thread together and stuff. So it's hard to write larger programs. But you can imagine a future where someone is coding in one of these environments or in general, right? And they're partially assisted by an AI or, you know, fully assisted by an AI. And you just, you're mostly writing very detailed documentation. You don't care about implementation, right? Which is, you know, even higher level than like, Oh, you know, we have compiler, you know, we talked about this earlier, I think, where, you know, you, you start with assembly language or machine code or, you know, punch cards or whatever. And then you, you, you kind of have assemblers, right. And then you have, you know, higher level, some higher level languages, and then you have better editors and debugging tools, um, you know, visual programming languages and, you know, other like kind of advanced tools to help you, but, you know, maybe kind of the, the further assistance of programming looks like something AI driven. And then even then like designing, a programming language so that it wasn't requiring this sort of hack of using an AI model that's trained on like reproducing text from examples, but could instead be like, what does an AST designed for AI generation look like? Um, what does it look like to just like cut out that kind of that middle layer of like the textual syntax of it that might like be an interesting frontier in which to explore this? Yeah. 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 You, you have a, I mean, cause I mean, GPT-3 ended up being just kind of like the tool they had, right? And it's super expensive. It costs like millions of dollars or whatever to train these models, right? But you could imagine a approach that's more like, let's take a bunch of running programs, right, as they exist. You know, and this is this is kind of like super fuzzing, I guess, right? Where you, you can, using various fuzzing programs, people have demonstrated like the ability to create a programs based on you know a certain input that can like parse the input or whatever or do do something for you like you want a specific output you know and that's kind of like that's really basic right like you, you drive it via you know effectively a genetic algorithm or something like that right but you can imagine instead of taking a huge corpus of code you actually take a huge corpus of running programs 
and you train an AI and it, I imagine like a transformer model would not be relevant at all in this case, right? To generate that code, right? Instead. <laughs> and, and that's even like lower level than the, the, you know, AST level or any kind of language level, right? It's just like, okay, well, here we, we, we kind of like either label the program in a certain way of like what it's doing or, you know, allow people to input screenshots or, or like mockups or something, right. That's similar to a different, uh, to a program, right. And it kind of generates a working program of the thing that you mocked up, right. Like, and once again, all of these, for any of this to be useful, you need to do a lot of curation and, you know, a lot of very careful prompting. And even then it still falls down a lot of the time because, you know, there, there's, there's issues with this, like with codex at least being, you know, it's still probabilistic. So like you don't get deterministic output based on your prompts. Your prompt will probably do a similar thing or the same thing every time you put it in, but it's not going to do the exact same thing. So you can write the prompt once, get a perfect result and then write the prompt again. And it's not quite what you wanted to. And maybe that's not a bad thing. I don't know. Yeah. I don't mind that so much because then that's how people program too. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting thought, you know, and that's, that's not necessarily related to VR particular, but it's just another nascent technology that will have an influence on how we program. Yeah. Well, let's, let's just wrap it up here. Like we've got two hours and 20 minutes worth of wandering in the wilderness, which is exactly what this show is about. So I think that that's, even though we hit basically one of the five different areas we could have gone into, I think that we hit it really hard and that's super cool. All right. Well, it was good talking to you. Um, you know, I hope you, hopefully that's, you know, a good set of material. <laughs> we did go off in the weeds sometimes. Um, but you know, that's what this show is all about. That's why, that's why, you know, Muse can do their like tight, you know, 45 minute or like the notion podcast, they can do their like tight 45 minute interview with Alan Kay over here. We're going to get fringy. We're going to get weird. We're going to go very deep into like hypotheticals and, and that kind of wilder side of futurism. So thank you, Scott, very much for going on that, that wander in the VR woods with me. Okay, cool. It's my pleasure. And that's the end of the interview. Thanks, Scott, for coming on the show. Thanks to Replit and Glide for sponsoring. And thank you to you for listening. You can rate the show or leave a review, but don't because that's not how this show spreads. It spreads by word of mouth. And so don't bother. It's fine. We have another interview coming shortly. I've already got it recorded with... Uh, Ella Hepner about the Vlosier programming environment. So stay tuned for that. That's all for today. So I will see you in the future.